They didn't waste any time getting the year started, did they? Goodness gracious. What a privilege it is to begin another opportunity to open God's Word. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you find the book of 1 Corinthians? Whether you have a printed copy, as I hope you'll bring to church with you this year, or you use an app with a device, I would like for you to find 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like you to find chapter 10. For those of you who are guests of ours this morning, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for several months. We had a bit of a break during some Christmas time focus on the person of Christ. And last week we had the opportunity to do a New Year's Day sermon and we took that. But now we re-enter what I enjoy the most, the bread and butter. My favorite part of being your pastor is to take a book of the Bible and to walk with you word by word, line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book through God's Word because it matches our theology. If we believe what we just so passionately sang about, and I hope that you do, I certainly do, that this is God's Word, that it has authority in your life, then you ought to never settle for anything less than coming to church and hearing the Word of God. This morning, I want to begin a new sermon series in chapter 10 with you called American Idols. I don't watch a lot of TV anymore. All that's changed. I'm a YouTube guy. If I get a few minutes, I may watch some funny YouTube videos with my kids. I just don't have a lot of time to watch TV. But over the course of my adult life, there have been a few shows I've gotten into. Law and Order, I began watching when I was in seminary, and I enjoyed that because I like the study of law. And then there's some other shows. I hate to admit this, guys, but ladies, Laurel and I got into to Downton Abbey, and we watched that together. And I found myself saying proper a lot. Uh, Yet, being married in 2000, that's the year Lord and I got married, the first show I can remember her and I having together was two years after our marriage, we were in seminary, when American Idol launched 21 years ago. 21 years ago, this show launched. Now there's been multiple spinoffs, and of course, Kelly Clarkson won the first year, a few seasons uh, in, Carrie Underwood won, and so some of the biggest stars of our day were found by this show. And I always thought it was rather interesting, the Simon, Simon Cow, the producer and creator of the show there with Randy and Paula, you my dog. Simon Cow created one of the most successful TV shows in TV history. And he could have named it anything, but he named it American Idol. And I always found that to be ironic because I understand what he and the producers of the show meant. We often use that term idol or to idolize something, and we don't do it in theological, uh, with a theological sense. We'll say, he was a rock idol or he was my football idol, or that particular model was my beauty idol, or this person was idolized by the business community because of the business that he or she built and the way that they ran it. And we understand when someone's saying that, they're not necessarily committing idolatry, but there is some irony in the reality that a show would call it, obviously, a search for the next person that everybody else looks to, wants to emulate, and adores, an American idol. Idolatry is still a big deal. 
And even though you and I might not find a lot of common ground with the idolatry we see in the Old Testament, to be honest with you, that's just because of our ignorance of what idolatry is. John Piper defines idolatry this way. Anything that we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. Note the word anything. When we think about idolatry in the Bible, we're quickly drawn to wood carvings or golden calves, but they were merely the physical manifestation of a deeper sense of idolatry, which is what? Anything. Tim Keller, another theologian of our day, a pastor, defines idolatry this way. It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. I'll be honest with you, in my sermon preparation this week, when I found and read that, it stung a little. If I'm being honest, if I'm being transparent, and I, I read that personally, not as just something I'll throw on a slide and share with you, whether you're live or online, it's more than that for me. When I read that, it's anything that absorbs my heart and my imagination more than God. Anything I seek to give you what only God can give you. So all of a sudden, idolatry takes on a, a different shape and a different form in our mind. It's one of the reasons I've been looking forward to walking through this chapter of 1 Corinthians 10 with you, not for you and I to just attack the world and its various idols, but for us to take a hard look at our own hearts as we begin a new year and say, is there anything in my life that I'm absorbed with, that I'm infatuated with, that I long for more than I long to be devoted to God? Is there anything I'm relying on? Is there any person I'm relying upon more than I'm relying upon the Lord? Lord to have his place in my life as the supreme source of all blessings and wisdom, but also as the supreme object of my adoration and my worship. Many of you know that we have a robust counseling ministry now here at Church of the Mill, and it's only growing. I'm excited about it. In fact, later this year in the summer, we're going to devote a whole Sunday to that. Pastor, Pastor, Pastor Ashton Amerson is going to share with you the vision of that and what God is doing in our biblical counseling ministry. But the thing about that is that counseling biblically really deals with the idols of people's heart. And so out of that ministry, here's some common idols in their training that they teach counselors to look for. Me and you, we can idolize people, positions, possessions, money, medicine, control. Any of you a control freak? Control. Some of you just got bumped. Mm. Conversation. <laughs> Idle conversation. Education. Entertainment. Sex. Food. Unforgiveness. And achievement. Those, that's not my list. That's a list of people who do biblical counseling full time. And as they help folks sort through what causes the issues in their life, these are the common idols that we are susceptible to. And there's a lot of ways you can address idolatry in your life and in, in my life, but the supreme way is to let the Word of God speak to us. And the fascinating thing about the Word of God, because it is from God of the Word, He knows how we are wired. He, he knows what makes us tick, and He knows that there is power in story. 
in true stories, in real stories. In fact, if you think about how you communicate with people, if you can connect what you're saying to something that actually happened, it has more power, more emphasis. I'll give you a couple of examples. If I say to my sons who are outdoorsmen, they, they like to be out in the woods. If I say, you start going out and climbing those trees to deer hunt, you wear a safety harness because you could fall. What do you think they hear as a 17 or a 19 year old? I'm down, I'm five, I'm down, never fall. But on a serious note, when I say, as a young man in my community named Jared, he's my age now, when we were in college, he came home for the weekend, went on a Friday afternoon to hang a stand to hunt later that weekend, never showed up for the Friday night football game. His father went and found him. He had fallen because he didn't have a harness on. And when he got to him, he said, Dad, don't move me. I think I've snapped my neck. He's a quadriplegic today. He lives his life in a wheelchair. When I told my boys that story, it connects. We, we do that all the time. We, we share stories to warn people, to, to remind people of the seriousness of their decisions. And, and usually the older we get, because we've lived longer and we've seen more, the more stories we have. And, and we connect those stories to the power of the warning. That's not new. In fact, sometimes we need to look back in order to live our future more biblically, more in a God-honoring way. And so this morning, I'd like to preach 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just the first 10 verses in a sermon series called, or a sermon called Back to the Future. Because I'd like you to look back with me as we look into your future. Read with me quietly or silently as I read aloud 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, notice the capital R, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to the divine death angel. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Three times, verse 1, and then again in verse 6, and then again in verse 11, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware about what did happen because I don't want you to be ignorant about what could happen. So I'm going, speaking of Paul, I'm going to recount what took place 
and apply it to your own life. Paul's taking us back to get us ready for the future. Now, there are two parts to this passage, if you just read it with me. One part is about what God did, and the second part is about what God's people did. And when we look back, it's not all negative. In fact, the first five verses are a celebration of, number one, the faithfulness of God. Paul is telling the Old Testament story. Someone asked me this morning, my preaching direction. I love the fact that people are interested in the books that are coming up. When I finish 1 Corinthians, my plan is to preach through the book of Exodus next. I'm looking forward to that in about 17 years when I finish this book. And so... We, we are excited about going into the book of Exodus. And if you ever know, that's kind of the pattern. I do a New Testament book and an Old Testament book, a New Testament book and an Old Testament book to give you the full breadth of God's Word. And the New Testament becomes even more vivid when you understand it in light of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament becomes even more hopeful when you see its completion in the New Testament. And biblical literacy and spiritual maturity go hand in hand. It's fascinating to me that, as some of you know, when we began 1 Corinthians, I instructed you that Paul spent the better part of two years in Corinth teaching them. And we see from passages like this that Paul taught them the whole Word. In other words, Paul had taught them previously about Genesis and the truths of Exodus. And so when he comes to this issue of idolatry, which he began earlier in the book, he wants to go back and tell them the story. Now, if you're in 1 Corinthians with me, you remember that one of the dust-ups in the church is that Corinth is full of idolatry. Yet Paul's not here writing to Corinthians. Paul's writing to Christian Corinthians. There had been a debate in the church. Can, can you go and buy meat at the market if you know that the meat was first offered in some idolatrous act of worship that had nothing to do with you, but you could then buy the meat after the ceremony? And Paul's argument, of course, is, is that we're free in Christ to enjoy meat and to eat it, no matter what somebody else believed about it. But then he makes the argument also that our freedom in Christ should not lead us to disregard the weakness of immature believers or young believers. And so he encourages people to abstain from any activity that may or may not be sinful if that activity causes a less mature or younger Christian to struggle. And we dealt with that over the last few weeks leading up into Thanksgiving. And so with idolatry on his mind, he does not want the Corinthian believers to become too confident that idolatry is in their past. Imagine how this works. Say you're a Corinthian citizen and the gospel comes to your community. And you go hear this man named Paul the apostle, this Jewish man, this rabbi who's talking about this figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the hearing of the gospel, the Spirit of God saves you and you become a Jesus follower and you are lovingly included into the church there in Corinth in a first century Greco-Roman world that was as pluralistic and as immoral as anything you see today. And you're walking with the Lord and so you're, you're no longer sacrificing to false gods. You're no longer involving yourselves in some type of sinister sexual worship uh, uh, at the temple of Aphrodite which was just outside of the city of Corinth. You, you've changed. You've reformed. You've repented. What could be your weak spot? It's the same weak spot for you and for me. 
I walked through the concourse this morning and I glanced out to the parking lot and I saw the busyness of the street and I'm just so warmed in my spirit by all the wonderful people who came to worship today. By all accounts, I'm sure the vast majority of you are tremendous neighbors. You're good employees or employers. You're a blessing to your family. Sure, like me, you got plenty of blind spots and weaknesses. But I know I stand and communicate to a tremendous amount of wonderful people. And your neighbors and your friends and your loved ones would say that. And even those who are not committed to Christ would applaud you for getting up and getting your family ready and coming to worship this morning. And that is a good thing and you ought to be encouraged. But where would we be susceptible if that is how we describe ourselves? We could become overconfident that idolatry is only a part of our past. We could convince ourselves that just because we don't bow down to statues or worship golden calves, that we can't have things creep back into our life that become the center of our focus. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, I, I don't want you to be unaware, so let me take you back and remind you first and foremost of the faithfulness of God. And then in verses 1 through 5, he tells the story of the book of Exodus. If you're unfamiliar, it's where God leads the people who would become the people of Israel. They weren't the people of Israel by then because they had not received Israel as their blessing. But they were the Hebrews, the Jews, out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery and captivity. God liberated them. He redeemed them. And he did so through a figure named Moses. And so Paul very quickly says, this is what God did. First, he directed their steps. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, what does that mean, under the cloud? Well, it's a reference. Exodus 13, 21 tells us when the people of God, the Jews, began to leave and Egypt. They needed to know what way to go. They couldn't ask Siri. And so God gave them his presence, Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them and by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way. Now, if you ever notice on a really dark night, well, with a full moon you can, but on a really dark night, the only way you can tell whether or not it's cloudy is if you can see the stars. It's hard to see clouds at night. If you go out at night and you see a bunch of stars, then it's clear. If you can't see the stars, if you see just blackness, chances are it's cloudy. But if the cloud led them by day, how are they going to walk and travel by night? Well, the Bible tells us along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. Night. So the first thing Paul says is, is that the people of God in the Old Testament received direction from God. He directed their steps. Secondly, he divided the sea. There's this great moment where they're leaving Egypt with Pharaoh's permission. But then Pharaoh watches his entire economy crash in a moment when he realizes all of our slave labor is leaving. And so even though the death angel has come and struck down the firstborn of every household in Egypt, except for the Jews who had spread the blood of a sacrificial lamb on their doorpost and therefore been passed over, this is where we get the Passover lamb reference to Christ, because this had happened, in light of it, 
Pharaoh released them, and then he changes his mind, and he sends the entire army of Egypt after them, and they bump up against the Red Sea. And we all know the story. Charlton Heston, I mean Moses. The Bible says, Exodus 14, 21, that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back in a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So this incredible act of miraculous provision divided, illustrating their greatest needs were being met. But he didn't just divide their sea, he delivered their salvation from Egypt. Look what the passage says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, if you're a good Baptist, you're not unfamiliar with baptism. We don't baptize in anybody's name but the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We did so right in this room last week. So what, what does this mean? Well, of course, it's symbolic language. We don't have any biblical reference in the Old Testament to Moses demanding that people wade off into a river and be baptized in the name of Moses. But the actual act of baptism in and of itself is symbolic. Every time we baptize here at Church at the Mill, me or one of the pastors will say, this water did not save the person. Uh, it is their faith in Christ. The Water represents outwardly the decision that they've made inwardly. And baptism then is by association. Paul grabbed this language and used it in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul would go on to say in the next passage, we were buried therefore with him by baptism. You may have heard a pastor do that. Buried with him in death raised to life this is where this verse comes from in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in the newness of life now imagine the collision of reality and figurative language in that statement i have not been resurrected yet physically it's because the prerequisite of resurrection is death and even though i might not look great this morning that hadn't happened i have not died Yet, I will die if the Lord does not return before my death. I am going to die. And when I die, my body will be lifeless. It will be cared for by those in the funeral home business. It hopefully will be treated with honor and respect. I will be buried. My grave will be marked, but my body will remain there. It will remain in a state of death and decay. My soul will not. The moment we die, we step into the presence of Jesus so my soul will be with the Lord, but my body will be in need of a resurrection. That will take place upon the return of Christ when the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise. That has not happened yet for me. Yet Paul says, when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, I am baptized into his death, even though I was not there the day he died, my sin was there the day he died. He died for it. And even though I have not experienced the day of my resurrection, if I was there when he died for me, I'll be there when he raises me. And so the scripture teaches this beautiful association of theological reality with symbolic baptism. And that's what Paul's saying. They trusted in God and God's man was Moses. So they followed God's man according to God's will in God's way 
And therefore, by experiential journey, they were baptized into Moses. The scripture says it this way in the book of Exodus. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Notice it wasn't fear in Moses and faith in Moses and in his servant Moses. So their being baptized into Moses is ultimately them associating with God who was their salvation. Thirdly, he delivered their salvation. But the fourth one's the favorite one. I, you might need a seatbelt for this one. Don't get Pentecostal on me, although it wouldn't hurt this church a little bit. He dwelt in them in the spirit. He dwelt with them in spirit. Paul makes a great Christological statement here. Look what he says beginning in verse 4. Let's start in verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Remember how God fed them? Manna from heaven. Oh, how I wish God would deliver some carbs in my life. I've cut them out after Christmas. But it'd really be hard to, for Laurel to argue with me about a carb if I said the Lord placed it in my hand. Hadn't happened yet. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Remember the water they needed in the desert? How did Moses get that water? It came from a rock. Look what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And don't ever doubt that the New Testament writers knew exactly what the Old Testament said. This is one story given to us by God. And all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul would have been well aware there was a rabbinic tradition, a legend, that the actual rock Moses struck to get the water followed the people physically. Now, that was a legend. It's, a, it's, a, it's not true. We don't have any biblical reference of that. In fact, the word rock here is not really a reference to a little rock you strike. It's reference to a boulder or almost the side of a sheer cliff. And so Paul took the literal God literally gave them manna. He literally provided water from a rock. And he also understood there's a spiritual aspect of that, that the food was from God, yet it was the spiritual sign that God was going to feed them. And the rock, the water was from the rock, yet it was a spiritual sign that God was going to nourish their thirst. I seem to remember a Savior who said something like this in the book of John. He says these words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Every Jew who heard Jesus say this knew exactly what he was referencing. The story of the people of God is that God is their bread and God is their water. And Paul explodes into our lives from this page of history the reality that it was the pre-incarnate Jesus, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, being present with the people of God, feeding them manna and giving them water. He was with them. Now, if you were to look at that list that I just gave you, those four ways of the faithfulness of God, before we move on, think about them. Has not God directed your steps in your life? Even when you wondered, he can use your wondering to get you where you need to be. 
Has not God divided the seas you faced? I'm, I'm not wanting to spiritualize the miracle. The, the Red Sea miracle was not for you to take and cheapen and make it your miracle that you apply to your life. That's weak need, superficial, mile-wide, inch-deep preaching. The story of the Red Sea is not for you to run up to your next problem and say, divide. The story of the Red Sea is for you to be remembered that the God who did divide the Red Sea lives in you if you're a Christian. And he will walk you through whatever you're facing, around it, under it, over it. And even if he allows you to face persecution and suffering, he will do it for his glory. But has he not removed obstacles in your life you could not have removed? And if you are a professing Christian, you have to answer a resounding yes that he's delivered your salvation. And has he not dwelt with you? I mean, one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian is the daily presence of the Lord, that he is with us. Not one of you have to call our church office during the week and ask permission to have a room unlocked so you can come to this altar to speak to the Lord. Of course, this is a special place of worship, and there are many of those in my life. There are places that I enjoy communing with the Lord, as I hope you have. But the reality is anytime a child of God bows their head and closes their eyes, they can speak to the Almighty who is with us. He is faithful. One last pastoral application I make often to you. The first thing the enemy wants to do when everything hits the fan in your life is to create doubt in you. And the hard part about doubt is that when you look at the situation in front of you or you look at the days on the other side of the situation, there can be a lot of cloudiness. There's a lot you don't understand. There's a lot you don't see. I saw several of you lose a precious friend and a loved one from our community this week. We saw our whole world pause. Suddenly ESPN's praying over this young man, Damar Hamlin, in that event that happened to him Monday night. Isn't it fascinating how all the atheists disappear when everything hits the fan? And people start crying out to God, and we praise God for what he did in that situation, how he made himself known. We rejoice in that young man's recovery. I rejoice in knowing that even those of you who have lost a dear friend this week in our community, you will heal and you will recover and God will be faithful. But sometimes everything in front of you is so hard, you struggle to see the faithfulness of God. Friend, listen to this text and do what it tells us to do. When you are discouraged about what you see, stop and turn around and look at all the ways he's been faithful. What you'll find is that when you reflect on all he's already done and all he's always done, you'll find yourself more strengthened to walk in faith when you don't know what he's doing. The scripture teaches us, though, that this is not just a celebration of the faithfulness of God. It's a remembrance of the failures of God's people. The passage turns in verse 6. It says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil. I think that's fascinating. That caught me in my study this week. Paul didn't camp on the behavior. He doesn't say that we might not do evil. Of course, Paul didn't want us to do evil. You don't want me to do evil. I don't want you to do evil. And more importantly, regardless of what you think about me or what I think about you, God doesn't want us to do evil. But Paul knows that doing evil doesn't happen in a vacuum. It comes from a desire for evil. The word desire here, if you go back and look, 
at the root of it, it really finds its way into that idea of covet, that we covet something that God says is not for us. That's how we fell in the first place, where Adam and Eve in the garden through the temptation of the enemy who appeared as a ser- serpent, they coveted the knowledge that God said was only for God. They wanted something that they should not want that would damage them, that God was protecting them from. And so Paul says, I told you all these things that happened in the people of God in the book of Exodus so that you wouldn't desire evil. And then Paul, as he so often does, he takes that previous historical account his admonition, and he turns it into good old application. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. And, and then he quotes, and what he quotes there is from Exodus 32. The quotation in 1 Corinthians says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Where did that come from? It comes from the book of Exodus. Specifically, it comes from chapter 32, verses 4 through 6. So remember when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive what will become the Ten Commandments. The fancy term for it is the Decalogue, but you know dec means, decade means ten. The Ten Commandments is given to Moses. Well, while that's taking place, the people are restless, and they tell Aaron, we want a God like the Egyptians had a God. So they take up all their stuff, and the Bible says in Exodus 32, verses 4 through 6, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. I always wonder, why did they pick a calf? Like, why not a lion? or a, I don't know, but a, but a calf, you know. Now, I like veal parmesan a lot, but it has carbs in it, so not anymore. And they said, these are your gods. Now, we think that's so ludicrous. They literally took the earrings off, the bracelets off, the necklaces off, the chains off. They melted it down. Goldsmiths formed it into a calf. They held it up and said, these are your gods. Now, anybody thinking logically would go, wait, wait, you just made that. Remember, whenever idolatry happens, you're not really worshiping the object on the outside. The root of idolatry is that you're worshiping self. It wasn't that the golden calf somehow displayed greater power than the God of heaven. It was that the golden calf let them define what their God was. And when you define who your God is, you can pick how you want to live. And if that doesn't apply to our world today, I don't know what does. The first step away from biblical Christianity It's not rejecting Christianity. It's redefining Christianity, redefining Christ, redefining marriage, redefining gender, redefining the way we should treat one another, redefining what a family is supposed to look like, redefining what is and what is not called sin in the Bible, choosing to talk things away through jargon that waters down the authoritative nature of the Word of God. And the Bible says in this passage, in the very next phrase, that after they received the golden calf in verse 6, the Bible says that they took it and began to play. In fact, the Bible says it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. 
The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't play much anymore. Like, I'll throw with my sons if they want to throw ball. But, like, I'm, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't do pickup basketball. I just don't. I can't. If you do full court, I end up staying at the midcourt because time they score, I turn around time they, I, I just sort of, on a fast break, I'm the middle guy. Throw it to me, I'll throw it to him, you know. I don't play a lot. I think Lord and I raised two in our 20s, two in our 30s. We're raising two in our 40s. The two that we raised in our 20s, I played more with them. Now, by the time I get down in the floor with the two little ones, they ready to get up. I just don't play much. I just don't, I, I've changed. I, I wish I could tell you that that's what this means. That this means they ate and drank before the golden calf and got up and had a wiffle ball tournament. That's not what it means. In fact, it's a reference to all kinds of sinful sexual play. So when Moses comes off of Mount Sinai, he sees before him a false god, false worship, and, and a large scale sinister, immoral event. And, and Paul says, that's not the way our lives should look. And you say, well, my goodness, Pastor, we're a long way from that. You know, every person I've ever known that finds their way in adultery started with idolatry. You mean worshiping a golden calf? No. I mean beginning to become enamored by something their marriage is not supplying are beginning to come consumed by the thought of love that they've never had are becoming consumed by the reality of the difficulty of their current situation so much so that the conflict within their marriage becomes their idol and they spend more time trying to escape that than they do going to the creator of marriage don't disconnect idolatry with immorality because the second failure is immorality. Look what the Bible says in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. If you've been with me in this series, you know that's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. But, but look what happens here. As some did, and 23,000 fell in a single Day. That's a reference to a story that takes place in Numbers chapter 25. The Bible says, while Israel lived in Shittim, be careful on your syllable emphasis, when, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Notice the connection between immorality that led to idolatry. This is why the Old Testament prohibited intermarriage. Whenever the Old Testament talks about not marrying outside the covenant, uh, people who were racist used that wrongly, even in our own community not too many years ago, to say this is a prohibition on interracial marriage. That's not it. What God was concerned about was the purity of the people's worship. It is a sin to intermarry if you define intermarry as a believer marrying a non-believer. I will not perform a ceremony of two people being married if one is a believer and one is not. It's not that we don't love the unbeliever. It's not that some of you aren't a believer and you became a believer after you married a believer. It's just not what we should guide people to do. Why? Because a believer's whole life is to be set by what does God want me to do? 
And if you don't have that relationship with the Lord, your trajectory, your priorities, your passions, your values are then determined by you, your philosophy of thinking, your own chosen way of making decisions. And so you cannot marry that which is solely to focus on the Lord and that which is not. And why? Because this happens. When you begin to mix people's lives sexually and relationally, you begin to mix people's lives theologically and at the level of belief. And this is why Paul is saying that when we allow immorality in our lives, it's not just about us quietly doing something with one person or one website or one porn site that doesn't affect any other area of our life. It's negotiating our very faith of who we are and what we believe and what matters. And then right after idolatry, we get to insubordination. And notice how this happens. I don't believe the passage is a progression. I do believe these can happen in different order, but it does seem interesting to me that first you remove God and you replace him with an idol, whatever that is. Then when something else is your focus, it opens your life up to immorality. And if you revel in immorality, if you don't repent from it, if you're not broken over it, if you don't return to your first love, then all of a sudden you become arrogant in your sin. I have seen Christians stray from God's will and defend their decisions with all kinds of jargon that does not go inside with the word of God, and that's insubordination. Look what the Bible says in the passage. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some did. The 23,000 fell in a single day. That happened in the book of Numbers. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's a reference to something that happened in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. The people started grumbling against God, and the Bible says they spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Now, these are the same people that prayed for 400 years to be brought up out of Egypt. These are the same people who saw the Red Sea be split, who saw manna fall from heaven. These are the same people who are now saying, we'd rather go back to Egypt and be slaves than serve you out here in this desert. And they begin to complain against the Lord, and the Lord had had enough, and he sent serpents into the camp. And as they were bitten in judgment, Moses fastened a bronze serpent and said, look to the serpent and you'll be saved. Not to worship the serpent, but to repent and say, I don't want any more of this. I'll take God's provision. In fact, when we look to the cross of Calvary, we're saved from the serpent's bite of sin. It's one story, one redemptive story from start to finish. And in subordination, well, it was followed up by people being ungrateful. Some of you love words like I do. This is a word. I know you don't normally use the word ungrateful, you use ungrateful, but all the eyes look really cool to me in my office. <laughs> they grumbled against the Lord. The Bible says it this way, and I'll close. He says these words. We must not put Christ to the test, verse 9, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is a reference to the re a rebellion of Korah, it's in Numbers chapter 16, verse 41. The Bible says it this way. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. The people they're referring to were killed in judgment for fighting against God. And they turned it and began to grumble. Now, if you put that list back on the screen, you just take a look at it. There's two things you want to do. One, you, you want to recognize Paul's saying, don't do these things. 
Like, I don't want to run past that. This should not be in our life. Then I want to thank Jesus because I've been all these things. And his grace is sufficient. And then the third thing I want to do is say, okay, what can I do this year to recognize when idolatry creeps in and to deal with it? What can I do this year to not even crack the door of any immorality in my life that might hurt me, my family, my, my witness? And when I'm a little angry, when I'm a little defiant, a little stiff-necked, a little stubborn, some of us are, what do I need to do? And when I get a little bit overwhelmed with what's not happening and ingratefulness, ungratefulness creeps in, what do I need to be reminded of? And that's the application of the text. Go be reminded of verses 1 through 5. The faithfulness of God. And I'm just going to tell you, it's very hard to stay in opposition to the Lord if you will humble yourself and just dwell on who he is. 100% or always statements are usually an exaggeration. Somebody says this happens 100% of the time. Or this always is the case. Normally it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. But I got one for you this morning. And it's rather sobering, but it's true. 100% of the time, when a Christian experiences a great fall, it could be a moral fall, it could fall away from their family, it could be something ethically, it could be their faith, whatever it is, when Christians fall, 100% of the time, it's preceded by some form of idolatry. And then I added always. I don't think anybody came to church this morning or watched online because you want to fall away from the Lord this year. You want to be unfaithful. In fact, that's the opposite of what many of you feel. It warms my heart to see your passion for the Lord. But the passage matters. I don't have a choice to preach the passage. The passage says, be informed that, that the greatest way to guard yourself from falling is at the level of idolatry. To fight that by looking to the Lord alone. I would summarize it this way. We look back seriously. We look forward obediently. And in our looking forward, we depend on the Lord wholeheartedly.